Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. On this Wednesday, July 31st, we continue our journey through the 10 plagues, which only continue to get more serious. The Lord does not take idolatry and unbelief. He takes them very seriously. And so he sends his plagues against Egypt with a purpose, a purpose that is not only for Pharaoh and for Egypt, it's also a purpose for his people, Israel. Those are some of the themes that we'll continue to explore as we look today at the eighth plague, which is in the text of Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. To help us learn what God would give us in his word this morning, we have with us Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's good to be with you this morning. So, Pastor Hill, we're looking now at the eighth plague, and it seems pretty clear by this point that the text is building towards a climax. Things continue to to go higher and higher. We're, we've come from somewhere, we're going to somewhere. We don't get to that climax in the text this morning, but we're certainly drawing closer to that. And so with that, that thought in mind that we've been somewhere, that we're going somewhere, um, help us get started with the text by setting the stage. Um, however you want to bring that context out within the, the whole narrative of the scriptures and the book of Exodus to the 10 plagues, uh, give us that context that's going to be helpful as we dig into the verses from Exodus 10 this morning. Absolutely. As we uh, enter into the book of Exodus, obviously it comes on the heels of Genesis, the first book of Moses, and uh, continues on the story of God's people. As we uh, enter into Exodus, we have a brief understanding of the way that uh, the Lord had brought his people through Joseph uh, into the land of Goshen inside of Egypt, there to be protected from the famine that had been taking place uh, back in Canaan and how they'd had such a, uh, a time of preservation there and been graciously preserved by God in that way. Of course, though, we know that uh, things change over time, and we see that uh, after 430 years in that situation, um, a new pharaoh has arisen, uh, and over that amount of time, uh, memory can wane. And as soon as that new pharaoh uh, takes the throne, he looks out and sees a great and mighty people, uh, the Hebrew people that have uh, continued to prosper there in Goshen, uh, people that uh, worship another god, come from another culture, speak another language in his midst. And that second pharaoh um, forgets the great acts of Joseph and the way that he had uh, saved the people of Egypt as well as Israel uh, for his contributions during the seven years of plenty and the seven years of want. Um, and he takes a different tack with God's people. Uh, we see in Exodus 1 that big transition point uh, and change. So what we see in Exodus is really uh, the foundational story of deliverance in the Old Testament. That's the beginning of that story of Exodus, and there are, of course, a couple high points in Exodus itself. Um, the one that we're working towards now most immediately as we look at the plagues is, of course, that tenth and final plague, the Passover, uh, where we see God save his people and the angel of death pass over uh, the Israelites uh, through the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and the lentils. But ultimately, the great uh, exodus of the people out of the land, across the Red Sea, the drowning of Pharaoh and his pursuing armies. And then ultimately, the great destination, uh, of course, with 40 years of wanderness, wandering in the wilderness intervening, would be the entry into the promised land. What I think we uh, see in Exodus also is that this story is foundational for um, the people in another way, in that um, they have received two different things in Egypt. First, they receive uh, hospitality and mercy at the hands of that first pharaoh. And then when the second pharaoh that's spoken of arises, uh, they receive some uh, great oppression there. And the way that they receive those two things as sojourners in the land of Egypt is really going to affect the way that they are later on in their history going to view other people who may end up sojourning in their midst and later on in their history. That is an important thing to see, just how foundational 
the book of Exodus is for the people of Israel themselves throughout the Old Testament, and especially when you you think about you know Moses writing the first five books of the Old Testament, that you know he wrote Genesis, but he wrote Genesis after the events of the Exodus had had happened or, or concurrently with some of the things that, that are written in the book of Exodus. And so how foundational this book really is for the people. And as you were, you know, as you were, you were recounting some of the things there at the beginning of the book of Exodus and including the end of, of Genesis, it's, it is interesting to do a bit of compare and contrast with that first Pharaoh that we meet in Exodus, the one who's said to have, you know, not remember what, what Joseph did, not know what Joseph did and, and how that came about, you know, the text isn't entirely specific as to why he didn't know. Was it a matter of you know historical ignorance, or had he willfully neglected? That that's not made clear. Um, but but in either case, to to see how it it almost comes about there in Exodus chapter one, as you know, this is just the way that it is. But by the time you get here to Exodus chapter ten, where we are today, this Pharaoh really has no excuse. You know, maybe that first Pharaoh had had an excuse. Lots of time has passed. Maybe people didn't tell him about Joseph and he forgot and, and you know, chose the path of unbelief. Not this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh has seen already seven plagues against against himself, against the people of, of Egypt that have gotten progressively worse. And he really has no excuse. And, and yet he continues to harden his heart, um, which, which might allow us then to, to kind of talk a little bit about the the plagues in terms of the the context we're here at the eighth plague uh, how does that plague kind of fit into the the scope that we have before us pastor hill yeah obviously the plagues as we hear about them uh they begin of course uh with the plague of the nile uh river turned to blood and we see there a couple of effects there number one of course all the fish that are in the nile die and the egyptians have to dig for water the nile stinks etc um, but I think we may even see in that first plague um, perhaps a hearkening back to uh, the great uh, oppression that Pharaoh had given to the people where he had uh, dictated that all of the male uh, infants that were born uh, to the Hebrews would be drowned in the Nile. Perhaps we see even the blood guilt of the Egyptians, um, the, the blood, so to speak, of those um, martyred young children uh, calling out on a, uh, account of the oppression that they've had calling out from the Nile as there's blood there. From there, uh, we, of course, end up with what I would call maybe plagues of annoyance, uh, the plagues that start somewhat small, although the, the proportion of them is huge. Uh, we start, of course, with frogs, then gnats, and then flies. Um, the, the land is ruined. Gnats are on the man and the beast. The flies, they come, they cover the ground, they ruin the land. But ultimately, the greatest destruction is yet to come in uh, plagues uh, 5 through 10. And in plague 5, we begin to see a systematic taking out of the agricultural and economic uh, means that the Egyptians have at their disposal. We see that uh, the livestock die. They lose livestock for food and for breeding purposes. Uh, when the boils come, they come on man and beast. It becomes so bad, the magicians, they can't even stand before Moses on account of the pain of the boils. Um, and then the seventh plague, the one immediately preceding, the one we'll talk about today, the eighth plague of locusts, we see lightning and hail that comes and specifically destroys everything in the field, including man and beast that are out in the field that haven't taken any cover. Uh, the text tells us specifically that the flax and barley are destroyed at that time, but it tells us that the wheat and the emmer have not yet come up. And then as we come here to the locusts, that wheat and emmer, which was still in the ground yet to come up, which supposedly I, I think the Israelites, or the Egyptians rather, could have hoped would have been able to feed them. God is going to even take that out and take that away from them on account of Pharaoh's unrepentance and hardness of heart. Um, later on, the ninth plague of darkness and the tenth plague of the firstborn, it all comes to its full culmination where everything has been stripped, not just from Pharaoh, not just from um, the individual Egyptian, but from the entire nation uh, as they're crippled under uh, this campaign that Yahweh has waged against Pharaoh and his people. Right, and, and not only against Pharaoh and his people, but especially against the gods of Egypt too. The the connection to the first commandment is, uh, as we've seen in the book of Exodus, is is so very important to notice how the Lord continually 
knocks away the idols. And, and several guests have pointed out, you know, how how some are very specific towards uh, the gods that the Egyptians had in their pantheon. And, and But then also just in general, when you think about what an idol is, something that we would place our trust in, um, the Lord is, is quite relentless here, especially in that connection that you made with the seventh uh, plague is very helpful to to notice how with the seventh plague, a good chunk of the agriculture gets taken out, but not all of it, Moses is clear to tell us. And now right here with the eighth plague, the Lord comes along and, and is going to to take out the rest, take out was what was still there. And so it's, it's very uh, relentless, it seems, in the way that the Lord um, fights against the gods of Egypt to show that he alone is the Lord. And, and again, to remember that, and we're going to see that as we get into the text here, um, but but to see how the Lord's doing this with that purpose in mind. He's not doing it to be mean. He's doing this to show Egypt and Pharaoh and his people that he is the Lord. He's the only God. Any, any more thoughts on context before we jump into the text? You know, the one interesting thing is you read the 10 plagues um, all together rather than just one by one is noticing uh, the manner in which Moses and Aaron interact. Um, as we read through the text, it's interesting to see that in those first three plagues, Yahweh speaks to Moses, gives Moses instructions, and then Moses speaks in turn to Aaron to affect the sending of those uh, first three plagues. It's actually Aaron that holds the staff. Uh, during those first three plagues. And then in plagues four through six, the text, it really doesn't specify whether or not Aaron's still the one taking action on behalf of Moses, or if perhaps Moses might be doing it himself. Uh, but here as we come in plagues seven, eight, nine, and 10, uh, the text does specifically indicate that Moses is the one holding the staff. Moses is the one more directly uh, doing these prophetic uh, and miraculous actions on behalf of Yahweh. And I think that's just so interesting because Moses was so reluctant to take that position uh, that Yahweh was calling him to, and, and he makes his excuses, and, and Yahweh gives him uh, his helper in Aaron. Um, but as he uh, has leaned upon Aaron at first, he learns in his task to be bold and strong in the Lord, leaning on Aaron less and less as he grows into the task that God placed before him. Uh, I think that is just so true of the many things that uh, we're each called into in our daily lives. Uh, as we are uncertain on first God, at first God equips us um, as we begin to fulfill those vocations, those roles that he's given us. He doesn't call someone who's perfectly equipped to do what he sets before us, but he equips us as we've been called. Yeah, he does. And that, that's something that maybe is easy to forget, you know, with all the plagues and you focus on the, the destruction that's there in the land of Egypt, uh, that is going on in the background, that the Lord is fulfilling those promises that he made to Moses back in chapters three and four from the burning bush. And, and he's making good on those promises. He's doing the things that he said he would through Moses. And to see that progression, I, I think, is a wonderful thing to, to draw out of the text that otherwise we might we might miss. So with that, let's let's begin looking at this uh, text from Exodus chapter 10. Again, we're, we're beginning in verse 1 here. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that, they, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. I think I'm, I'm going to pause right there. I know we haven't gotten very far, <laughs> but I think let, let's pause right there because there's just so much there, uh, Pastor Hill, where, where the Lord now is going to send Moses back to Pharaoh again. He reminds Moses of the hardness of, of Pharaoh's heart, but he also gives us these, these reasons that he's, he's continuing to do this. Uh, thoughts on those first couple verses there, Pastor Hill? Well, in any kind of Bible study of the plagues, um, the question that you get over and over is, what's going on here with the hardening of hearts? It's something that, um, that we worry about. I think we wonder, is it possible that God might uh, show up one day and harden my heart and I might be doomed? And here in the text with Pharaoh, um, we wonder, who's the cause of this hardening? The text team seems to speak in different ways. Well, here, um, it clearly attributes, in this case, the hardness of heart to Yahweh. He says, I have hardened his heart. Um, but we do know that in other places, Pharaoh's given um, responsibility for the hardening of his own heart, especially uh, in the second and the fourth and the seventh plagues. So I think what this may teach us um, is that oftentimes when we um, might look at someone and say, they have a hard heart, has the Lord done this to them? Um, it, is, it is preceded 
from from their own hardening themselves first. And the other thing to remember here, of course, is this is such an extraordinary circumstance where God is doing a great and mighty wonder that's going to become the foundational story of his people. Um, and it, it really, the example we have here in Pharaoh should not be something that we apply to ourselves and, and lose sleep over. We have to really just throw ourselves um, on the clear passages of Scripture that assure us of our own salvation and the way that God will never snatch that out of our hands. Yeah, I, and and to to jump on to, to a couple of those thoughts and and to to piggyback where we uh, it's it's so important that we do see how those two things interplay in the book of Exodus, where the text will say both things, where where sometimes it's Pharaoh hardens his heart, and other times it's the Lord hardens his heart, um, and, and to recognize that that those two things go together, and, and that when God does this work of hardening, he's not doing, he's not creating evil, right? God is not the author of sin. He's not the cause of our sin. That that comes from within us. That's already there. And and, and to, res, to see that in Pharaoh, I think, is an important thing, how, how so often it does say Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then after that, that's where the text becomes clearer and clearer. Now the Lord is doing it because he's he's simply letting what's already there manifest itself. Um, our, our mutual friend, uh, Pastor Carl Roth, uh, called it Burger King theology. Um, God lets us have it our way. When when we want to be God ourselves, he, uh, he lets us have it that way, and we see the devastating consequences. And, and then, too, also to— to keep in mind, you know, you, you brought up, could God be doing this to me? And that is, you know, as, as a pastor, I know you, you've you heard people say that you you get people that wonder, is is my heart too hard? And, and again, to repeat to them, the fact that you're struggling, the fact that, that you wonder if you have a hard heart is a sign that no, the Holy Spirit is working on your heart. He's, he's using the law to bring you to repentance that you might hear the gospel and, and believe in Christ. Uh, thoughts on that, Pastor Hill? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, Pharaoh uh, was not running to Moses for advice or counsel. Um, the, the heart that knocks on a pastor's door and says, Pastor, we need to talk, uh, I'm wondering uh, if my heart has grown cold, if, uh, if my heart has been hardened by the Lord, is certainly not the heart that could possibly be hardened, um, because it's seeking uh, help in the place where God has promised it to be, in the comfort and counsel of God's holy word and in his gospel. So uh, again, that's one of those things. If you're asking the question, um, you don't have the problem. Now you may need some uh, direction or uh, some type of, of renewal in your, um, in your life lived uh, towards God and your devotional practices or some other thing. Um, but for one to fear that they've had a hardened heart and lost their salvation uh, couldn't be further from the truth. Right, right, and and when you go to your pastor, which which if that is you, go to your pastor and talk to him so that he can he can point you very clearly uh, to Christ and Him crucified for you, that you might take comfort in those promises, and and you know that that's that's what the Lord the Lord wants Pharaoh to have faith, right? The Lord is is continuing to come to Pharaoh for a purpose, and, and we get a little bit of those purposes here in these first couple of verses of chapter ten. Uh, comments on on those what the lord's up to in this plague and in the, the whole of exodus here pastor hill yeah it's interesting here that um it's uh said in verse one that um yahweh is showing signs of his amongst the people the plagues here are referred to as signs because signs of course point to something it is that inherent idolatry that the egyptians have um of, of their own practices their own gods it's a, um, a reminder even of course that pharaoh himself was regarded as divine and these mighty acts of yahweh are, are to point the egyptians to the fact uh, that yahweh is supreme um, that he is the one true God, uh, the only one with true power. Uh, nothing in the Egyptian religion could possibly measure up to those terrible wonders that Yahweh was causing to take place. Um, we're reminded, of course, that those Egyptian magicians, they could replicate the two first plagues, uh, the Nile turning to blood and the frogs. But beyond that, they are shown to be so powerless compared to Yahweh, and the sign is pointing them uh, to Yahweh's supremacy over all things, and pointing them ultimately to repentance uh, for the sin and the hardness of heart that they've had. 
Now, there is a second function, though. Uh, the signs are not only meant to do something for the Egyptians. They're meant also to do something for the people of Israel. And I like to refer to this almost as a catechetical function that it's going to have for Israel. Um, the reminder is that God is going to do something so great and mighty that it couldn't possibly be forgotten within the generation of those who saw it. And then it's incumbent upon them to pass what they had seen down from father to son and daughter, of course, from, from son to grandson and granddaughter. It's a story that's meant to be retold. We see that even in the Passover Seder meal, um, which is one way that the story was retold from generation to generation with a special eye for teaching the story um, not only to those who had reached some kind of age of maturity, but especially to the young. So uh, that's something that's incumbent upon us as well, isn't it? That we should pass the story of God down from generation to generation. I'm reminded of Luther and the Catechism that uh, we're told, of course, at each chief part that this is how the head of the family should teach the chief parts in a simple way to his household. Um, and we don't just have that story of the Exodus, but we have that even greater story of Christ, uh, who has delivered us not just from the clutches of an earthly slavery, but who has saved us from the clutches of sin uh, and death and damnation. Yeah, this is a this is a really neat thing to see, I think. And, and this, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that it shows up like this in the text. I mean, the Lord has has repeatedly said, let my people go so that they may serve me. Um, let my people go so that you will know that I'm the Lord. These these things are there. But but here we have a very explicit, you know, also I'm doing this, the Lord will say, so that you can keep telling your your children and your grandchildren and and I think inherent in all that too is is tell the world what I have done and, and that's that's just a fantastic thing yeah the the verse that came to my mind uh, from the New Testament in First Peter chapter two Peter takes language from the book of Exodus and applies it to the church today and he, he says that that you the church you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession all of that is is Exodus language and then he says why that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and, and so to to see how this is you're exactly right it is still true for us as the church that one of the reasons God does for us what he does is is first to save us and second so that we would then tell other people uh, and and starting starting with our own families right I love the the connection you made there to uh to uh, Luther's small catechism um and, and and so this does you know this does even show up then in the worship life of the people of of Israel um in the psalms uh, psalm 105 is is one example you see how the people of Israel do recount this um, to themselves in the very worship life of, of their people in, in the Psalms. Uh, Pastor Al, I think you did a little research on, on that, right? And, and we're kind of lacking in that in the church today in terms of how we proclaim the plagues. Uh, yeah, we certainly are. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I have a, a couple liturgical axes that I like to grind, and one of them is I would love to see us incorporate um, a congregational reading of the Ten Commandments before we might ever um, confess our sins in the worship service to, to give form to that confession. Um, but I just for fun, you know, I, I waited and uh, picked up off of my shelf a concordance to the Lutheran service book to see, do we have any material in our liturgy and our hymnody that uh, is referencing uh, the plagues? And, you know, there's there's nothing at all there. Um, <laughs> so who knows? Perhaps we could do something about that. Um, I know you enjoy writing hymns and um, I'd like to get started, too. So. Maybe in our spare time, you and I can get together and uh, maybe versify these ten plagues to uh, Luther's good old hymn, These Are the Holy Ten Commands. So uh, there might be some real possibility there. You know, that, that that might just make it into the next hymnal that our church body produces, perhaps, Pastor Hill. Um, we'll, we'll have to work on that. No, I, I think that's uh, the reason, I, and I know you, you say that somewhat in jest, but I, I do think it's, it's just it's a good point to make, that, that the works of God— even the plagues are intended by him to be proclaimed. Um, you think about what Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection, and, and he's teaching his, his apostles there. He says he opens their minds to, under script, to understand the scriptures, and, and he says that these things are written so that, 
that you would proclaim repentance and forgiveness in my name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And that includes the plagues. And, and so to, to see that as, as even a, you know, a possibility for, for a hymn that we might use these to proclaim his works, uh, to proclaim repentance and forgiveness to the nations, even, even in the voice of, of a hymn. That's, I think that's a helpful reminder. Um, so, so thank you for that challenge. If, if you and I don't get the chance to, to pick that up, I'll invite our listeners to, to go for it. Uh, write a hymn the, uh, of, of the Ten Plagues. There, Pastor Hill gave the These Are the Holy Ten Commands. It's number 581 in your Lutheran service book. If you've got that on your shelf, there's a tune for you. And, and write us a, a hymn on the, the Ten Plagues and and uh, send it our way, and, and we'll see if we can't get that that worked into to worship somehow. Thank you for that that challenge, Pastor Hill. Uh, we we are about near the time for our break. Uh, we're looking at Exodus chapter ten, verses one through twenty, with Pastor Nate Hill of St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Please uh, stick around and, and catch the rest of this text with us with us on the other side. Hello, this is Dr. Dale Meyer. Have you heard Concordia Seminary's program, Word and Work and Intersection? Every week, you can hear it on KFUO Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central Time. We visit with many interesting guests about how the Word of God applies to their daily vocations and ministries. Be sure to tune in, and may the intersection of Word and Work be busy on your corner. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, July 31st, as we look at the text of Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, the eighth plague against Egypt. We've got Pastor Nate Hill from Winchester, Texas with us this morning. Pastor Hill, before the break, uh, we looked at the first two verses of the text, so I'm going to go ahead and, and keep reading for us that we may uh, continue to, to dig into this Word of God. So again, this is Exodus chapter 10, beginning at verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you're asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. We'll pause there uh, to, to see this kind of lead up to this eighth plague of, of locusts that, that Moses has, has predicted now. Um, Pastor Hill, what, what should we bring out of these verses? Well, I think first off, we see that uh, the Lord is giving Pharaoh opportunity here, uh, opportunity to humble himself, uh, opportunity to uh, turn away from his pride, his hardness of heart, opportunity uh, to relent of the grip that he has held so tightly uh, onto God's people with. And uh, we see here that Pharaoh is just not willing to do it. And that, I, I think, demonstrates to us that even before the hardness of heart, Pharaoh's chief sin is pride. Um, he's far more than the civil ruler in that society, regarded as divine. Um, and for two Hebrew men to walk into his presence, one of them likely stumbling and bumbling over his words, making some request like this, uh, for him to grant it would, would be for him to look very weak in the face of his advisors, even at this point as the plagues have progressed so far. Um, so, 
Pharaoh is unable to humble himself and admit in his actions that he is less than Yahweh, that Yahweh is supreme, which gets back to the whole point of what these signs are showing, uh, that the Lord, the Lord himself, he is God. Um, also, we see here in this... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to, just to, because we didn't, we didn't really bring that out earlier, but just to, that you did right there, the number of opportunities that the Lord gives to Pharaoh. It's it's not like, um, it's not like the Lord hasn't come to him over and over and over again. And here yet again, the Lord is coming to him uh, with this invitation to repent. And and so to, to remember that um, it's not as if the Lord has been or is being unfair to Pharaoh. In fact, he's been more than gracious, uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's he's been patient with Pharaoh, um, but Pharaoh has presumed upon that patience, as the the scriptures warn us uh, not to do that. Pharaoh has done that, and so Pharaoh is is getting that to experience exactly what he's he's asking for. Um, so so just just to, I, that's just wanted to highlight that very briefly before we moved on because we didn't really bring that out earlier. Uh, but so then you you, have, you get the locusts right. So, so, I mean, I guess most of us know kind of what a locust is, but, but what should we see there? Well, to me, when I think of a locust, I think of those little fat ones, the green ones that uh, get onto your screen door and then they shed their shell and leave that brown split shell behind. I don't know if the listeners have those in their area too, but that's what I think of. And those are relatively innocuous. I don't think I've ever seen those uh, chewing on the plants in my garden. So I did some research here to see exactly what it was that the Lord was threatening the people with. And uh, this is as uh, into the Hebrew as I'm going to get today. Um, but the locusts here in the Hebrew text are, are the Arbe. Uh, we looked that up uh, and see that these are likely what is called uh, a desert locust. Uh, Schistocerca gregaria um, is likely the uh, species of locust. And when you look into them, uh, what you see is that they appear very similar to some of the more aggressive-looking grasshoppers that we might be familiar with. In fact, that's what they are. They're a, a, a swarming, short-horned grasshopper. Um, and these plagues of desert locusts have threatened agricultural production in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia for centuries upon centuries. And even today, it's said that the livelihood of at least one-tenth of the world's human population can be affected by this incredibly voracious insect. Um, so what's interesting here is that it's not that the Lord is sending something to them that they're completely unfamiliar with. The text indicates that uh, what's going to be poured out on them will be greater than the fathers or grandfathers had ever seen, so they had seen these locusts before. But God is going to pour these locusts out on them in... I suppose we would say biblical proportion in such a way that there will be no denying that this comes from the hand of Yahweh um, and the destruction that they could wreak would, would just be devastating. Right, especially given what has just happened in the seventh plague, that the Lord has is, is taken out, you know, just to be simple, he's taken out half the crops already. You've only got this this half left. Uh, if if there ever was a time for Pharaoh to to repent, now's the time. You, you're, the rest of your crops are depending on it. And, and what's I think what sticks out to me in this text especially is that Pharaoh doesn't budge, but you've got some of Pharaoh's servants who come to him and and start preaching to Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh, what are you doing? <laughs> Listen, uh, uh, Pastor Hill, thoughts on on how Pharaoh's own servants begin to implore him to listen to Moses. Yeah, I wonder how often this happens in the halls of power around the world. You know, a face has to be put on when you're negotiating with the other party, but when that party leaves and you're surrounded by your own advisors, you no longer have to have um, that same um, attitude, uh, that same uh, shield or cover of, of pride and power that you would have to have when negotiating. So, uh, Moses and Aaron, they leave, they turn out from Pharaoh, and there Pharaoh is just with his servants or his advisors. Um, and they're somehow able to shake some sense into Pharaoh privately. Um, they remind him um, that Egypt is ruined, and I assume that Pharaoh would have been the most insulated from these effects. Uh, he would have been the one living uh, highest on the hog, so to speak, even despite all of the things that had happened here. And perhaps they uh, point him out the window of his palace and have him survey the land, who knows. Uh, and he finally has some sense 
Um, and what's so interesting here is that he now calls for Moses and Aaron to be brought back into his presence, as he seems at least to some extent to have reconsidered and be willing to make, I suppose, what we would say is a compromise. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's amazing to see how how Pharaoh, you know, uh, thinking through the narrative of Exodus, how Pharaoh in his rebellion against God, uh, certainly, I don't, I don't know if I want to say he stands alone, because there are obviously plenty of Egyptians who stand against the Lord and his people, but certainly stands out as as the chief opponent of the Lord, even when so many people around him uh, seem to get it. Pharaoh's own daughter, back in, in Exodus chapter 2, willingly saves one of the Hebrew boys. We've we've already seen the magicians confess that uh, this is the finger of God at work. And here you have some of Pharaoh's own advisors pleading with him to to listen and to bring Moses and Aaron back. And, and so you, you get a, a hint of, of, you know, Pharaoh's like, well, okay, we'll do it. But even then, it, it would seem that he's trying to, as you, I think you pointed out well, to, to keep that human element in mind, right? He's, he's trying to save face. He doesn't want to appear weak in front of his people. And so he's, he's going to work away here so that he doesn't have to, to uh, cede to all of, of Moses' demands. So, so, so Pharaoh says, well, well, hey, who's, who's going to go? Uh, and Moses says, well, everybody. Pharaoh says, no, 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 no. That's not going to work. Uh, what do you see there in that, that interchange between Moses and Pharaoh? Well, I think that um, <laughs> Pharaoh wants to make a compromise, but the last time I checked, the Lord isn't terribly interested mm-hmm. in compromise and half measures, is he? Um, <laughs> he wants to find some way that he can save face um, and be able to claim to his people that he didn't give in, to hold on to some of his own semblance of self-determination and um, and being the master of his own people, the master of his own destiny. Um, but that's just not going to be possible. Um, of course, uh, Moses says, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. It's as if he's saying there's no way to possibly have a feast to the Lord if we only have half of the people there. Um, and I think that says something to us, too, as well, um, our whole lives, not just parts of them, are to be lives of worship and devotion in response uh, to the gracious acts of the Lord. We, we don't come half-heartedly. We don't come with half-measures. Um, but if the Lord is truly to be the God of our lives, uh, if we're truly to, to strive to keep that first commandment, um, compromise or half-measures are not on the table for us. Yeah, and, and to see, too, how the, the Lord isn't going to save half of his church either. Uh, not only does he, he call us in our whole lives, but he calls his entire church. He doesn't leave some of his church behind. He doesn't leave his, his people behind, but he, he calls them all to himself. Um, and, and so, you know, he's not going to, to leave half of his, his church behind there in, in the land of Egypt and slavery. He's going to save all of them. And, and I, I think, again, you know, this, this bit about separating the, the men and the women Pharaoh's, uh, although this was a different Pharaoh, right? It was that first Pharaoh in the book of, of Exodus that we met. But Pharaoh, that Pharaoh tried this already. He he wanted to kill all the baby boys. He tried the separation of men and women. Here you've got another Pharaoh doing that same thing. And, and to think of the way then that that attacks the promised seed, the this offspring that the Lord promised back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, by separating the men and the women again, here you see Satan at work attacking the promise that God has made in the Garden of Eden to send his his promised offspring, um, just as the Pharaoh did back in Exodus 1. So we we see it again here. Um, and of course, the Lord's not going to, to have that. Uh, any more thoughts on those verses, Pastor Hill, before we move on to the rest of the text? Well, I think the thing that I read um, out of this text, or at least imagine, so to speak, out of the text, is uh, Pharaoh, as he says, to them, the Lord be with you if I'll ever let you and your little ones go. Um, this is, to me, a very dismissive tone, you know, um, as if I'm willing to play this game with you up to a point, but um, he is placing himself once again above the Lord and saying, well, we'll see uh, if the Lord really is out there, if the Lord really is God, as, as he hardens himself once again. Mm-hmm. And and the, I think the, the mocking there is, is quite evident. You know, I mean, even with those words that we use still today, you know, Pharaoh takes those words upon his lips, not not in sincerity, but in, in falsehood. And yeah, I, I think you're exactly right to see that. So let, let's go ahead and read the rest of our, our text this morning. We're in Exodus chapter 10, beginning now at verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, 
stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. That's the remainder of our text this morning. Pastor Hill, we've got not quite 12 minutes left here uh, to, to look at this. I know there's a ton there. Where do you want to start? Well, I think the, the thing that I noticed uh, reading this text a bit more closely than perhaps I, I normally do is that the wind precedes the coming of the locusts for quite some time. Um, we have 24 hours here where that east wind is blowing, and it says that it is indeed the wind that brings the locusts, uh, that brings them to uh, Egypt. So the question then is, well, what do we make of that? Does that mean that the locusts, they're already present in the land to the east in such great number, just already there that they're gathered by that east wind and the wind simply brings them all to one concentrated place, you know, or is it possible here that Yahweh creates this great number of locusts even beyond what had been on the face uh, of the earth there before, uh, out of nothing, so to speak, uh, for the purpose of bringing them for this event. Now, uh, the Lutheran Study Bible, we read in the um, footnote, says that this is evidence that the locusts came from a great distance, proving to the Egyptians that the omnipotence of Yahweh extended beyond the borders of Egypt. And I certainly wouldn't argue with that interpretation. It goes with that first option, that those were already there in other lands and just pushed by the wind. Um, but uh, this is an interesting question that uh, people often ask in Bible study is, did they come out of nowhere, were they already there and brought in? Um, I think people ask this question because they uh, are worried that one interpretation might indicate a less than miraculous cause to the plagues. But I kind of view this uh, slight debate in the same way that I think about uh, the, the star over Bethlehem. There's, there's a debate there. Was it a star that had been set in the heavens from creation, perfectly timed to land there in that particular place um, at the time of Christ's birth, or was it one created for that specific event just for a time? Neither one uh, is any less miraculous, whether God had planned it that way from the foundations of the earth or whether God had caused that by his creative hand to happen in that short instance. I think one of the important things to keep in mind when it comes to questions like that is, is what is the attitude, what is the faith uh, from which that question proceeds. And so often in our world, we see unbelievers asking questions like that, not out of faith at all, but out of a, a desire to prove God's word wrong or to perhaps show that it's ridiculous, to show that it is uh, unbelievable. And and that requires one answer, uh, very firm in terms of, of the truth of the Lord's word, that he does not lie and what he says is true. Whereas the question I think that you're describing and that pastors are more likely to encounter is a question that is coming from faith, a desire to believe exactly what the Lord says and to, to understand that in, in faith. And so with, with that in mind, you know, coming from that attitude, I think it's just helpful, you know, just to, as, you've, as you've helped us do, to pay attention to what the text does say. And I think one of the first things to notice is that as, as you said, the wind does come first, but Moses is very clear to tell us that the Lord is the one who brings the east wind. And, and, and that, I think, has to shape the entire discussion, of course, that, that this is the Lord's doing. Whether, whether then the locusts were 
far away. Uh, and, and the Lord uses that wind to bring these tons of locusts that are far away, and that's how he does it. Or the Lord uses that wind as the sign that these locusts then that he simply creates in a, a more you know miraculous, out-of-nothing way, that's how he does it. The text doesn't say that. But to recognize that, yes, this is the Lord's doing, and there's no denying that it's the Lord's doing. Um, because he sent the wind— and then because of, as you've pointed out already, the, the extent of this plague, this is, this is one that, that Egypt had never seen before, nor will Egypt ever see like this again. Is that, is that kind of, I mean, are we tracking together on that, Pastor Hill? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think when we read this, rather than seeing it firsthand in the way that, that those who were there saw it, um, we may not really take the time to adequately understand just what a huge event this would have been. Um, yes, the quantity of locusts would have proven, of course, um, that it was the Lord. I mean, it covers the entire face of the whole land, um, but also just the damage that's done. Um, this is just a huge statement here that it says, not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Um, Egypt um, is fed by the life-giving Nile. And um, I imagine that you at Grace, um, well, I know that you at Grace have just come off of uh, Vacation Bible uh, School and have done the Miraculous Mission space-themed VBS. Uh, we just did that, too. And one of the things that our kids went home with were some pictures from space uh, that were taken by an LCMS astronaut. And I was paging through that with my kids the other day. And just what you see from space gives you this this bird's eye, almost God's eye image of everything. And when you look at the Nile Delta, it is green in the midst of nothing other than sand and, and, and brown. And the effects of this were finally that you couldn't, from that perspective, any longer distinguish the Nile Delta from the surrounding desert. So great was the destruction. That that really is a, a striking image to picture because you're you're exactly right. You you know exactly where the Nile River is when you see a, a picture from space. But but now to to not be able to discern that is is just a an amazing image to to recognize just exactly what the Lord has done here in this plague, all to bring Pharaoh and Egypt to repent. I mean, what what again to go back to that hardness of heart a, a bit. You know, what great lengths the Lord is willing to go to bring people to repentance. It, it's astounding to, to think about. And so we do see Pharaoh react here. Um, Pastor, we've got about five minutes left. What, what do you want to see here in terms of Pharaoh's reaction now to what this plague has done? Well, this statement is amazing in verse 16, where Pharaoh quickly calls Moses and Aaron, and, and he says this, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. You know, that's a very clear statement of the culpability that Pharaoh bears for his sin. Um, I kind of wish that, uh, that we followed at least that example in this small instance regularly, where we would acknowledge that when we sin, we've not just hurt somebody else's feelings, but that we've affected not only the horizontal dimension of our relationship with our neighbors, but our, also our vertical relationship with God. And he has this right up to this point in verse 16, that he seems to be... Um, repentant. Now, you get to verse 17, and he says, Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And I'm not sure what to make of that there, really. Um, the manner in which he's pleading, only this once. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if this might be indicating that he's not sincere uh, fully, or that he might only be hoping to get out of the immediate consequences of his actions. Um, Maybe he's just pleading out of desperation instead of having a true change of heart. I think that's going to remain a mystery. Um, but at any rate, he makes this statement of repentance here. Uh, and what we see next is that Moses then takes action on the basis of the statement of repentance that Pharaoh's made. Yeah, I, I just to, I, that is an, an interesting thing to, to see. You know, in verse 16, it seems sincere. Verse 17, you wonder if he's not hesitating a bit. And, and, and I think you're, you're right to point us to the words that Pharaoh does speak. This is good to, to confess your sin against the Lord and, and against Moses as well. Um, that, that is a good thing. We don't know what's in Pharaoh's heart. I, I will say everything in the text thus far, and, and especially when you consider that the Lord has said what's in Pharaoh's heart, that his heart is only hardened, um, I, I think would indicate to us that it's, it's not a true repentance. Um, 
but but to recognize that at least the words that have come from Pharaoh's mouth, he he's at least gotten the the words right, even if his faith isn't right. Um, I, I think is and and Moses then, I, as I think you you would point out is, and we've seen before then foreshadows what Christ will do in terms of his own intercession. Christ intercedes even for his enemies and, and commands his church to do the same in, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, pray pray for your enemies and those who persecute you. And you you see Moses doing that here. Um, and, and he does pray. Then the Lord listens to that prayer. He sends now a west wind, right, the opposite of a west, an east wind, and, and drives the locust toward the Red Sea. I wonder if there's not a, a hint of a foreshadow there or not. Um, and, and then we find out that well, if there was any repentance in Pharaoh's heart, it's very quickly gone. It, his heart is hardened again. He doesn't let the people go. Uh, Pastor Hill, we've got about two minutes left here on the morning. Anything we didn't get to talk about that you want to bring out or give us a summary and, and bring it home for us today? Yeah, I think the um, main things that we need to take away from this text is to really read it again with, with open eyes, to really allow ourselves in our imagination to see what's going on here. We've heard the story so many times, uh, even from our youngest age and, and in Sunday school. We have a simplistic view of, of what's going on there. I, for one, in preparation for this, watched some clips online. I started with the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston movie, and then moved on to that illustrated or uh, animated Prince of Egypt movie, and then finally that newer Exodus Gods and Kings movie. And as the, the movie techniques um, increase in their complexity, my, my horror at the event increased as well and how much more terrible must this have been in person so the vivid descriptions here were meant not just to read them quickly and pass over them as a children's story um, but it should strike fear in us about the power and judgment of God but that fear of God's wrath paired with the clear revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ that we're so blessed to have in the New Testament um, should move us to faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is our only hope to be able to stand in the presence of such an almighty uh, and powerful God. And by grace through faith in Jesus, God's wrath is driven away from us, just like those locusts were driven away by the west wind. And beyond that, as we were talking earlier, that story is not just for us. Uh, it indeed needs to be retold from generation to generation and even beyond our own families to our friends and neighbors. Um, the Exodus story is, of course, important, but the fulfillment of that story, salvation in Christ, uh, is the most important of this body of stories that we have in God's Word to pass on uh, to our children and even beyond. And then I think we can also see in this text that God fights and does battle on behalf of his Israel. And we as New Testament Christians are certainly counted as uh, God's Israel, God's chosen people in Christ. Uh, no earthly ruler, no authority, nothing in this world can stand a chance in the face of God's purposes for his people. Not even the supposedly divine Pharaoh could stop God's plan to save them. Pastor Nate Hill is the pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas, helping us this morning with Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20. Pastor Hill, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. Nothing can stop God's plan to save Israel. Nothing can stop God's plan to save you and me. He's done it in his son, Jesus Christ. And now it is our privilege to proclaim what he has done to each other and to a world that needs that good news. That is the good news that Sharper Iron is all about. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas, sharing that good news with you this morning. Thanks for spending the hour with us. We'll see you again tomorrow.